All right, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be headed. So if you want to take out uh, your Bibles and start to make your way that direction, we are going to be uh, in chapter 9 where we hope to make it through the 31st verse this morning. But as you uh, head that way in your Bibles, let me just remind you where we started off in chapter 6, what we found is that there was an issue taking place in the early church. They had a problem that was present. They were not able to take care of the widows there in the early church. And so as a result, they appointed uh, to service seven gentlemen that would become the first deacons of the church. And a couple of those men uh, were rather notable, uh, one of which was Stephen, who we're going to see highlighted in the next chapter, and then Philip that we looked at uh, last week. And what we saw is, as Stephen was faithful there uh, in that calling to just simply be a servant, that out of that he was actually able to preach and teach the Word of God, rather powerfully, in fact. And he was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 7, as he was able uh, to teach the Word, he was drawing the uh, ire of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council that ruled over their religion in uh, Israel, he drew attention, and so he appeared before them, and as he appeared before them, he very methodically goes through Scripture and actually gives them uh, direct examples of Jesus Christ showing up throughout their uh, Hebrew Bible, or our Old Testament. And so he lays out this, this very methodical pattern of Christ existing in the Old Testament, pointing to our need of a Savior. And as he does that, uh, what, he, what we find at the end of chapter 7 is that rather than being converted, they were actually angered. They were incensed. And one of those gentlemen that's mentioned in verse 58 is one that we'll focus on today and throughout the rest of our studies in Acts. Uh, that is Saul of Tarsus. And he actually ordered for or agreed to the death of Stephen, who becomes the first martyr in our New Testament. They laid their coats down at the feet of, of uh, Saul of Tarsus. Essentially, he was agreeing to the death of Stephen. Now, in chapter 8, what we looked at last week is that this, in fact, sends Saul into a, a murderous rage. He goes from this scene where he tries to stamp out the New Testament church with the death of Stephen, and then he proceeds to go throughout all of Jerusalem. And what we read there was he was making havoc against the new church. And that word havoc is tied to a, a wild boar that's injured. So literally an animal that had gone insane, that had lost his mind. And so he is trying to stamp out and to stop the spread of the word of God. And the way is what they would actually call this Christian movement. But in an effort to stamp it out, instead what he did was actually send it spreading throughout all of Judea and all of Samaria. That just like with a campfire, when you try to stomp on it with your foot, what happens is the embers spread. And that's precisely what took place, was that throughout all of Judea and Samaria, the disciples went, and everywhere they went, they were preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so we see the spread of the gospel message. And that's where we're going to pick up here in chapter 9, verse 1, where we read, And then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so what we see is here was Saul back in chapter 7. He was refined. He was dignified. He was a well-educated man, trained and educated under Gamaliel, the teacher of teachers of all of Israel. And yet now this man who wouldn't even get his hands dirty to throw a stone at Stephen, just stood there approving of it, is now uh, resorted to literally grabbing people and dragging them out of their homes. 
And what we read here is that Saul was breathing threats and murder. This, uh, this idea of breathing threats was like an angry bull who was cornered, literally breathing out anger out of his nose. And you have to wonder, what was it that actually upset Saul so much that he was this mad that this guy that wouldn't get his hands dirty now is dragging people out of their homes? And you have to ask, was it perhaps the message of Stephen, who so calmly and peacefully gave them the word of God? pointed all things back to Jesus, and then as they were stoning him, said, Lord, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And so what you find is something that actually plays out in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 55, this is a famous uh, verse in Isaiah. Actually, I'll begin in verse 10. Isaiah writes, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth it shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what i please and it shall prosper in the thing in which i sent it and so what is stephen sharing there in chapter seven as he gives a, a, a dissection of their old testament scriptures but he's sharing god's word And what is happening in the heart of Saul is God's word was actually implanted in this man that was determined to to stamp out the church. And yet what we find is that God's word will not return void. And I want to share that with you as a way of encouragement that if you've shared with people who are lost that you care about, lost that you love, and you wonder, am I doing any good at all? Keep sharing. Keep sharing God's word because you have no idea what it will really affect the way that it will actually impact them. And what his word promises here in Isaiah is that it will never return void. And so continue in that. Now, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. So Saul is now headed on his way to Damascus. He's got letters from the high priest in hand that say that he has the right to drag Jews from their home to bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried for turning to Jesus as the Christ. And as he's on his way with murder in his heart, with deception, with, with, villain, with you know, villainous behavior in his heart, he sees the light. And so again, I want to encourage you that when you think someone is too far gone, that it's not, there's no way, you know, that, that there's just absolutely no way this person is ever going to see the light uh, continue. Because how could it get any worse than Saul of Tarsus? So here's Saul, and what you find is uh, the light literally breaking through to him. He's knocked off his horse. And then in verse 4, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What you read there is Jesus crying out to Saul, why are you persecuting? Notice he doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting these innocent people and dragging them out of their home? But instead, what the Lord says is, why are you persecuting me? He was taking it personally, just like a husband would do so for his bride or a bride for her husband, or like we would do with any of our family members. Think about this. When someone's taken advantage of someone you love, how do you react? You take it very personally, right? And this is the case for Jesus. He's saying, look, I'm taking this very personally. I remember in high school, I was a football player, and our coach encouraged us to go out for a spring sport. And so I went out for track, 
man, that's horrible. Who knew you had to run in track? Like, I had no idea. And so quickly, I switched from track as a junior to tennis. This is going to be way easier. And what I didn't realize is that we had perhaps one of the worst uh, tennis teams in the history of the state of Illinois. I didn't know that that's what I was signing up for. So as a football player, built like a football player, I had no business on the tennis court. Uh, Quickly, I found myself playing as the number two player on the team. That's how bad we were, not how good I was. So we uh, managed to make our way to uh, play T-Town, who had a bunch of little fantastic tennis players, guys that weren't built like football players. And so as I'm playing this young man who is literally just beating the daylights out of me, I mean, this is an embarrassing display. What he began to do, though, was call shots that were uh, in, out. And I'm thinking, look, man, I mean, I'm clearly losing. You don't have to add insult to injury by calling my shots out that were in. And so I explained to this young man, uh, all 175 pounds to his 110 pounds, exactly what I was going to do with my tennis racket uh, and how I was going to apply it to his body if he continued to call my shots out. To which this young man's father did not take very kindly to that. And so he began to yell and explain uh, to me just what he was going to come out and do to me uh, if uh, I touched his son, Uh, to which my father explained to his father just how badly this was going to go for him if uh, once his, I think his, exactly what he said was, once my son is done beating your son, uh, I'm going to come and give you a little piece of what you got coming. It was something like that. Needless to say, the match was quickly ended. Uh, I didn't know you could actually lose a match that fast, but... My point to all that is, how do we feel when we're mistreated or when people we love are mistreated? How much does that actually bring up in us? And and understand, take comfort in this, that when you have persecution coming down upon you, when it feels like the whole world is crashing down and you wonder if God even cares, what he tells Saul right here is, why are you persecuting me? I take this that personally. So whether you fall on the comforted side of this or the convicted side, it's important to understand that's how he feels about his bride. Now, verse 5, and he said, this is Saul now responding, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And so Saul asks a very important question. This is a question that every single person must ask and answer who are you, Lord, either in this life or in the next? My my hope is that that you will discover this in this life while you have an opportunity because you will know it for all of eternity. And so Saul asks there, who are you, Lord? And he replies, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he goes on to say, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads or the the King James version uh, that, that I grew up says, wasn't it hard to kick against the pricks? The goad was actually a a stick with a sharp end on it. And what they would do is, as the oxen was treading grain, a goad would be directly behind their hind legs. So when they decided they didn't want to go that direction anymore, or they wanted to kick against the person working the field, it would mean a sharp object right in their hindquarters. It didn't make a whole lot of sense for the oxen to kick against their master. That's what Jesus is telling Saul. Wasn't this hard to go against the direction of God? And then I wonder, how often have I tried to kick against the goats? How often, how foolish was it to actually go up against the Lord and try to go against his direction in my life? Now, verse 6. 
So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so he, he goes on to ask the next important question. First of all, it's, Lord, who are you? Now we've established who you are. Secondly, it wasn't, Lord, what can you do for me? If you remember back to our study last week when we were in chapter 8, what was Simon's big question, Simon the sorcerer? It was, Lord, what can you do for me? What thing can I buy so that I can have prestige and power? But instead, Saul asks a very important question. This is the question, Lord, what can I do for you? And so he, he asked this question, and in asking that, in asking it in that way, Lord, how can I serve you? What you begin to understand is uh, that's ultimately the prize. That the prize that we have in this Christian life is to get to serve the Lord. It is such a privilege, such an honor to get to wear that nameplate, to get to be Jesus with skin on when it comes to interacting with people. In fact, so much so, when you think about what he's given us, I mean, just think about the simple fact of being saved from eternal damnation. I mean, that's a pretty awesome prize, which is why uh, Paul would write in Philippians 3.14 that it's the prize that he presses on towards the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's the upward call. It's that call to heaven. That's ultimately the prize. Anything else we get in this life, it's just gravy, that it's all worthwhile because he's the prize. Now, verse 7 and men who journeyed with him stood speechless, and hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And so here he is, Saul, who is determined by the power of his hand to go into Damascus to remove people from their homes. And now he has been rendered utterly powerless. He has to be led by the hand into Damascus. That's significant. The other significant thing to pick up on is for three days he fasted. Now numbers in the Bible always hold significance. You might recall that the number three appears a few different times with reference to days. Uh, for example, uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jesus then use this as an example to what he would be. He would be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And so what you find is that for uh, Hebrews, what they knew is that after three days, you were considered officially dead. You were dead, dead in their mind. So two days, we're not quite sure if you're dead. Three days in, okay, he is officially gone. There's no coming back from this, which is why in the story of Lazarus, when you think about him going to his friend's house to visit his friend who had deceased, what day did he show up on? But day four. After the third day, he shows up, and when he tells them to roll the stone away, uh, Mary, or Martha, comes out and says, oh, Lord, not sure you want to do that. In the King James, she says, he stinketh. He's, it's going to be bad when we roll the stone away. He is dead, dead. And so Jesus there was showing his power over death. But yeah, what we find here with Saul is that for three days, he did not eat or drink. And, and I find that significant because in that three days, I believe Saul goes from death to life. Saul goes from a man who was a dead man walking to a live man able to actually go into Damascus. Looking defeated, he actually was victorious. And what we see is uh, uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, 
This is one of those highlighter-worthy verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That when his eyes were opened, he was no longer Saul the murderer. He was now Paul the apostle. And so he was going to be reborn, made into a new, transformed creation. And notice that while he was being transformed, he could see nothing but the light of Jesus. That in that transformation, everything else went away. All other things faded. He could only see the light of the Lord. Now verse 11, excuse me, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And uh, to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. As a little side note, you have to love redemption stories. Here are three names given, all three with negative connotations, and yet God is going to redeem three different names, different people, and yet names seem to have a significance to us. Here's Ananias, here's Judas mentioned, and here's Saul all mentioned. The next piece I want to point out is what is Saul doing as he's in the house of Judas, but he is praying. So when you look at the different signs of conversion, the first of all, he is, he is a humble man. Saul has now completely been humbled. He's been broken down. And the second piece is he is a man of prayer. He is spending his time praying to his father. Now then verse 12, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And so Ananias, getting this vision from the Lord, he says, Lord, maybe you missed the news. I don't know if you got the memo, uh, but this Saul is one bad motor scooter. I mean, he is going through, arresting people, dragging them out of their homes. This is not a great thing. Maybe you meant a different Saul. But what I was getting at there earlier about these names, think about the last time we heard the name Ananias. He was a liar, a deceiver. And then when we think about the name Judas, what, what, what immediately is synonymous but a betrayer? And then, of course, Saul. We think of King Saul from the Old Testament, right? What a complete phony he was. And now here we have these three names laid back out. And now you have Ananias showing obedience something that the old Ananias did not do. You have uh, Judas being valiant. You know how brave it was for him to bring Saul of Tarsus into his house and let him pray? Anything but a betrayer is what this Judas was. And now you've got Saul of Tarsus transformed. Not like the old phony Saul from the Old Testament, but a completely reborn, rejuvenated man. And so you see redemption of even names in the Old Testament. Now then verse 15 but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so as God is communicating to Ananias, he says, I want you to go to Saul because here's why. He is a chosen vessel. I determined even before Saul was born, I picked him out. 
He is my property, my vessel. And when you think about Saul and what makes him so perfect for this ministry, you've got a guy who was born in Tarsus. That's this area in the Roman Empire. It was actually a Roman province, meaning anyone born in that city was considered a Roman citizen. He had this tremendous amount of Greek culture in this city. And so for young Saul, he would have been able to learn the Greek language and their culture and their arts. They would have spoke Greek fluently, and yet he was also born a Hebrew in a Jewish household, a very religious household. And so his family would have brought him up going to synagogue, learning the Torah at an early age, taught by Gamaliel. He was literally the perfect candidate for this ministry. And then we see what God says of him. He said, look, I'm going to show him the things that he's going to suffer for my name. Now, some of those things, Paul is going to give us a little bit of his resume. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you're curious, some of the things that the Apostle Paul had to suffer, he says in verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes. That's 39 stripes across the back. And three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils by sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. That's some kind of track record. I mean, what an amazing amount of suffering that the Apostle Paul would have to have. And yet, in reference to this, if you flip back just a few pages in 2 Corinthians, verse 17, this is what he says. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Saul, having that kind of resume says, that's a light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory of God. And I think as we consider that and you wonder, how could he have ever possibly come to that conclusion? If you skip down to to chapter 12, verse 4, this is what Paul says. He actually says in verse 3, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows how how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. As much as God showed Saul how much he was going to have to suffer, he also showed Paul his tremendous amount of glory. This is the glory that Paul is talking about, the the, the glory that is before him, the glory, the promise that is Jesus Christ, eternity with him, when it compares to anything this world has to throw at us, it's nothing. It is nothing. And and the reality is, I've shared this with you before as Christians, but when you think about it, that the most the world could throw at you, the absolute worst it could do, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. That's the reality. The absolute worst of the worst that Satan can come up with, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to receive. And the flip side is, unfortunately, if you do not believe in Jesus, This life is as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. You better make it good. Because if you're trading uh, this place uh, for your heaven, this is one hell of a heaven. It is not the kind of heaven any of us want to pursue. And so what Paul says is this is a light and momentary affliction. Now then verse 
17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. The first thing I notice when Ananias was so obedient to go to this house is that he called him Brother Saul. He didn't call him, hey, murderer Saul, hey, brutal Saul, hey, hey Saul, the, the violent, the vile. He said, brother Saul. What a reaction. What a lesson we can learn when it comes to handling other brothers and sisters in the church. And the second piece was he, he laid hands upon him. Do you understand the power of human touch? Just a simple pat on the back, a shake of the hand, a squeeze on the shoulder. It is so impactful when we just simply reach out and accept one another through the power of touch. It is so very valuable and vital. What, what Ananias was communicating to Saul when he did that was, you're accepted. I accept you. I believe that God can transform you. And do you realize that God can transform absolutely anyone he pleases? And so if you've been praying for that person for a while, if you've been wondering, can God ever get through? Look, if he can get through to Saul of Tarsus, he can get through to anybody he pleases. Now, verse 19. Excuse me. Yeah. Immediately the scales fell off. He received his sight. He arose and was baptized. And then verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul went some days with the disciples to Damascus. And immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he, had, that he is the Son of God. So here we see Saul. He's got this unbelievable background to teach. He's got incredible knowledge of the Old Testament that many people didn't even have. Remember, Jesus first called a bunch of fishermen. They didn't have this kind of knowledge. Saul's got tremendous knowledge, and immediately he's able to apply it and able to teach it. But then remember his calling. What did the Lord tell him? He said, Saul... I'm going to send you first to the Gentiles and then to kings and then to your brethren and then to the Jews. And yet, where does Saul go first? He goes first to the Jews. What we're going to see is that over and over again in the ministry of Saul, I don't believe he had a bad heart in this whatsoever, but yet it caused him additional pain because he would always go first to the Jew. And many times he would get rejected, beaten, turned away, ran out of town. What God said is first go to the Gentiles, and then you're going to speak before kings. And we see these things taking place for the Apostle Paul, and then thirdly to the Jews. It reminds us to be careful of the way he's called us and who he's given us a voice to speak to first. Now then verse 21, all who heard, speaking of Saul teaching, were amazed and said, is it not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. They were confused. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. So as he goes into the synagogue, look at their reaction. They're amazed and they are confounded, but they are not converted. They do not believe. 
And so as a result, somewhere in these next several verses, what you're going to find is that Saul actually leaves Damascus and he makes his way into Arabia where he's going to spend three years getting what I called his DD, his doctorate of the desert. He's going to go into the Arabian desert and for three years, what he tells us in Galatians chapter one, he met with the risen Christ and he was taught by Jesus himself how he appeared throughout the Old Testament. And so Saul's going to have this continual teaching by Jesus himself, but he is rejected by his brethren. In verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a basket. And so what we see is uh, these men, as the Apostle Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, excuse me, is sharing with them uh, Jesus in the scriptures, that he is the Christ, their long-awaited Messiah, uh, their reaction is, well, it's like Saul's reaction was. <laughs> He should be familiar. They reacted the same way. They, they, instead of listening and believing and being converted, they decide to kill him. And so where Saul is left is he is left uh, at night in the dark, uh, being let down off the wall in a basket. He has to flee. He has to run off. Now then verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, in verse 27, took him and brought him to the disciples and declared, and brought him to the apostles, excuse me, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so what we see is he, after this three-year period there in Arabia, he goes to Jerusalem to meet and speak to where does he go again? The Jews in Jerusalem. He goes back in to speak to, this time, his converted Jewish brethren. And yet they were afraid. They rejected him as well. They, they did not understand. How is it possible that this man could be converted? I mean, they'd seen all these miracles. I mean, you think about it. These guys had seen the lame walk. They had seen the dead come back to life. I mean, tremendous miracles. But what could they not believe? That Saul could be converted. How could that guy be converted. And so they were afraid of him. But thank the Lord for Barnabas. Thank the Lord, by the way, for Barnabas's in our life. His name literally means the son of encouragement. And what does he do? He comes alongside and he encourages Saul. And he encourages the apostles, exhorts him a little bit like, hey, look, this guy's got a tremendous testimony. You need to listen. You need to hear it. And he gives witness to the transformation of the apostle Paul. Now then, verse 28. And so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and out. And he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they, they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And so again, Paul is going to go and he's going to preach. This time, it didn't work with the Orthodox uh, converted Christians. Now I'm going to go to the Hellenists. These are still Jews, but they spoke Greek in their house. And he's got to be thinking, look, I'm going to hit my niche. These are going to be my people. They're going to get the message. He goes to them, and what he finds is, again, rejection. That they, they instead, not knowing what to do with him, they have to send him back home. They send him to Tarsus, where, by the way, he would spend 10 years in Tarsus, 
waiting for another opportunity in ministry. And in verse 31, and the, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And so think about this. Here is Saul. He's given this tremendous message to go out and grow the church. And yet what happens is he is not accepted. The timing is all off. And so he's sent back to Tarsus. And what happens to the church? It grows. It grows in spite of Saul. Saul feeling like he was a part of this great ministry, this, this growth of the church. He's been called to go and speak. Yet what does God say in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6? But not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You see, Saul needed to learn a valuable lesson that often we have to learn, that it doesn't matter how hard we work, how determined we are, how many hours we put in. If it's not by the Spirit of the Lord, the thing will not prosper. But conversely, if it is by His Spirit and by His strength, nothing can stop it from prospering. And so an incredible lesson that has to be learned as Saul is taken off the scene, I believe in large part to make sure he's humble enough to go into this ministry. He's going to spend 14 years after his call to Christ not serving actively. In fact, his ministry is only, only going to last 15 years. If you think about that, think about the power, the impact he had in just a short period of time. But what he got to learn in this early part of his Christian walk uh, was this. Uh, verse 25, think about how it, it all started for him. He was in the dark. They said he was off the wall. <laughs> they let him down. Think about that. And, and when it comes to his relationship, these people that were supposed to come alongside him were supposed to care for him. Instead, they literally let him down. They literally uh, let him down because, man, that guy's off the wall. I mean, he, he's in the dark. And how many times have you felt like that in a relationship? Like you've been kept in the dark? Like everybody thinks you're off the wall, you, you've lost it completely? And so, as a result, uh, you've been let down. Maybe it's a personal relationship. You've had that experience. Maybe it's church. Oftentimes, it is. Being let down by the people that weren't supposed to let you down. They were supposed to listen. They were supposed to come alongside and encourage you. When Paul was referencing this, again, back to 2 Corinthians, and we camped out there a little bit today, but in verse 32, referring specifically to this time, he says that in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So what Paul's saying in summary is, I was going to die in Damascus, and God knew it. And so he literally, what I thought was such a letdown, such a disappointment, he saved the Apostle Paul. And think about what happened next as he was able to spend three years getting to know Jesus. I want to encourage you, um, if that's been you, if you've been let down at any point in time in your life, maybe it's by someone you love or a group of people that were supposed to come around and support you, uh, perhaps that's the thing that Jesus is using to actually draw you closer to him. 
that maybe his plan is to actually get you to be able to dig deeper, to dive deeper into a relationship that, by the way, will never fail. Anytime you put your faith and your trust in a human being, please understand there's a chance, a very good chance, that they're going to let you down. They're going to say you're off the wall. They're going to fail you. And by the way, that includes even your pastor, that we are human beings. We are not perfect. And so as a result, we allow ourselves, we put ourselves in a position to be completely let down. But I believe that in large part, as Paul was writing Romans chapter 8, one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the New Testament, I believe he had this in mind when he says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That regardless of what relationship you had that failed, what person let you down, do you understand that Jesus Christ will never, ever, no, not never let you down? The reason he encourages us to depend upon him, to rely upon him, to put him first in every situation is because he knows any human is going to take the chance to let you down. But Christ will never. And so for Saul, he had to learn this lesson. For many of us, we have to learn this lesson, unfortunately, the hard way. But it's such a beautiful lesson once you get it. It's such a beautiful lesson once you grasp it. And for him, I can only imagine the pain that he felt as he was let down by the church. The church then growing after he was let down. I mean, what a kick in the gut. And yet, do you know that the next time multiplication is mentioned in the book of Acts is going to be in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, when Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get the apostle Paul. You see, it was going to multiply in God's timing. He knew exactly what he had planned for Paul all along. And it was going to, by his strength, it was going to multiply. So be encouraged if you've been in that season. Be encouraged if you've been in a spot of letdown. He wants you to know him better, to rely upon him more completely, more deeply, and he has got multiplication in mind for his word. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for a miraculous story of conversion. Lord, we thank you that while we can be let down sometimes by relationships, Lord, sometimes by ourselves, which is maybe the most painful of all, that you will never let us down, that your word promises that, that not principalities, nor powers, nor things on this earth, nor things to come can separate us from you, can separate us from your love. Thank you for that promise, Lord. Thank you that you pay off that promise over and over and over again. Thank you, Father, for your character. I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to cling to that and, and have our faith rooted deeply in that knowledge. Thank you for transformation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand. single
at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I try to win this war I confess My hands are weary I need your rest Mighty warrior, king of the fight No matter what I face, you're by my side When you don't move the mountains, I needed you to move When you don't fight the waters, I wish I could walk through When you don't give the answers, as I cry out to you people said. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys for this morning. It was awesome to get to hang out with you. Uh, be encouraged as you go out. Uh, there are lots of sons and daughters of encouragement in here. So continue to encourage others as you come alongside them. Uh, as a reminder, we've got our volunteer meeting after service. So we'll start that here in about 10 or 15 minutes. Don't forget to get your kids. We don't need any more extra kids at our house. So please be sure to still do that. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.